0: Good evening. I I need you to pray for me. I, I I'm feeling kinda bad, uh feeling kind of uh diminished somewhat. Uh, you know, when Mark got up here he was well prepared, he had a great outline, he had beautiful uh PowerPoints, uh he knows how to embed videos into PowerPoints. Uh, he knows how to take a lovely children's story and somehow make it applicable to his lesson. He gave us a whole list of do's and don'ts. He challenged us to wear our name badge. <laughs> hey, we're going to study Obadiah this evening. Okay? We'll show Mark. Hey, find out one of the, uh, find out one of the greatest, one of the most fantastic, uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament. Go right past the book of Jonah and you'll find it. Uh, it's a little bitty. Uh, there are three books in the Bible that are smaller than Obadiah. It's 3 John, 2 John, and Philemon, I believe it is. And Obadiah's only got 21 verses. Uh, it has about 425 words in it. Very small book. This guy's a minor prophet. Now, do you remember the difference between major prophets and minor prophets? Major prophets were ones that had big books. Minor prophets were guys that wrote little bitty books. That's all. The importance of them is negligible. Because every prophet from God had something to say to people for a reason. He had something to tell them. Usually, what he had to tell them was a warning. Look out, guys. You're going in the wrong direction. You need to straighten up. You need to go the way you need to go. You better straighten up. Bad things are getting ready to happen. And almost always the prophets are speaking to Israel and or Judah Israel being one and the same, but once once the country divided and became Israel in the north and Judah in the south, there were prophets that spoke to each one of those. It was almost always trying to get them to straighten up and do the right thing because God was upset with them, okay? Obadiah is a little bit different. Obadiah is going to speak to Esau's clan, the Edomites. He's going to talk to the Edomites, and they're not even part of Judah or Israel. There's really a reason. We're, going to, we're actually going to read the whole thing in just a second. Let me give you just a little bit of an introduction to it. The name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh or servant of Jehovah. It's not unusual, as we know, for folks in Old Testament and even in New Testament times to be given a name that means something. And there are so many names in Scripture that mean something about servant of God or one loved by God or whatever the case may be. And Obadiah was really no different. It's not a name we use today. Uh, when I was younger uh, and, and just kind of getting started out, I did five years of youth ministry and 15 years of, of preaching, and I hated the Old Testament. Not, not literally, but oh man, if somebody asked me to preach out of the Old Testament, that was bad news. Steve, I don't know when you started preaching out of the Old Testament, but it was a long time for me. I just didn't, I didn't know about it. I mean, of course I had read it, but I really didn't know about it. I didn't wasn't into it. And once I got into it, I would have gone back and changed nearly everything I, I said because the Old Testament is so powerful in telling us about God's will and telling us about the nature of God and telling us about who God is and what he does and why he does things. He's so wonderful that we would have gotten into this. And in fact... My son, if I'd have been into the Old Testament, my son's name might have been Obadiah. Don't tell him that. Uh, one Jewish uh, tradition identifies this Obadiah as, as a steward of Ahab who was a king of Israel, okay? And if so, he was the Obadiah that had about a hundred prophets, or, or excuse me, that hid about a hundred prophets from uh, Jezebel, Ahab's wife. She was really a bad, bad gal. I don't think that was the guy. Uh, the events described in this Obadiah uh, fit a little more naturally into uh, into Judah. Fit a little bit more naturally into the time of, of uh, King Jehoram, who was a bad king. By the way, if you look. If you go on the Internet, or if you look in one of your books and you look up the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, you'll see that most of them are bad. And even the good ones had some bad stuff about them. But Jehor, uh, Jehor, uh, Jehoram was, was a bad, bad king. We're probably talking before uh, 586 uh, B.C. Uh, in the first place. And then historically we find out some of the prophecies of Obadiah happened, you know, maybe within 100 years uh, or less from, from that period of time. Uh, so he may have been the Obadiah that was sent by Jehoshaphat to teach the law to Judah. Could have been. Could have been the same one. Uh, 2 Chronicles 17, uh, and verse 11. Uh, he, and, 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 and the Obadiah who was one of the overseers, uh, who assisted the repair of the temple was a possibility. Uh, helping, uh, repair the temple under, uh, Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34. There were 13 Obadiahs. In the Old Testament. So it's a little bit difficult to pin this one down to exactly who he was. However, this Obadiah and his message contain a great lesson for some folks that were in, going in the wrong direction. And some folks that had, that couldn't get over a grudge. They couldn't get over a, a, a rivalry. And God had some words for them, okay? Let's read Obadiah. It's not, it's not that long, y'all. Turn with me. I'm reading from uh, NIV, by the way. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nation to say, Rise, let us go uh, against her for battle. See, I'll make you a small nation. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You will live in the cliffs and the rocks and make your home on the heights you will say to yourself you can bring you can bring me who can bring me down to the ground though you soar like eagles and make your nest among the stars from there i will bring you down declares the lord if thieves came to you if robbers in the night oh what a disaster awaits you would they not steal only as much as they wanted if grape pickers came to you, would they not uh, leave a few grapes? But how Esau, that's the father of the Edomite nation, but how Esau will be we ransacked his hidden treasures, uh, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not uh, detect it. In other words, you won't know it. Verse 8. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding, and the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, Teman, will be uh, terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered in shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor nor rejoice over the people of Judah." In the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It'll be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Most of the minor prophets and most of the prophecies spoke in prose very similar to this. But what he was saying to Edom is, Your time has come. Your time of destruction has come. Well, let's back up just a little bit. Remember, the message is. Edom, it's over for you. Uh, Because of your pride and because of your cruelty against Israel, uh, hey, it's over. They're your relatives, literally, physically. They're your relatives. It's over for you. And the exaltation of Israel, or Zion, will be rescued. Okay, what's the history of Edom? Let's talk a little bit about Edom before we get into the, the, uh, the meat of the lesson here. Well, the people of Edom are descendants of Esau. Now, you remember... Uh, Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had, uh, and Isaac had Jacob and Esau, and Jacob and Esau, so Jacob and Esau were grand, grandchildren of Abraham. Jacob and Esau were twins; they were born together. But twins can't be born together. One has to be born right before the other one. And so it was Esau. So Esau was born right before Jacob was born. So that made him what? The firstborn. And what was the great heritage of firstborns? Everything. All the blessings. This is my... In biblical times, you read about firstborn all the time. It has great significance. You know, God set up a system and an order of people, an order of the way he wanted things to be. And firstborn was part of that. And it was part of that system and that society to maintain that order generation after generation after generation. And so Esau was it. Not Jacob. Esau was it. They were rivals even as children. And the twins, it said in Genesis chapter 25, struggled even in their mother's womb. You know, so sibling rivalry is nothing new. It it wasn't created, uh, you know, in the 60s or 70s. This has been going on forever. Scripture even says that when they were still in mom's womb, they were struggling sounds amazing to me but as they as they uh, got older then there were differences in the two okay esau was the rugged guy he was the hunter gatherer guy uh, he was the guy that was favored by his dad and jacob uh, was the guy that was favored more by his mom okay and so even mom and dad got involved a little bit in this rivalry okay which kind of should tell us something don't do that Moms and dads, because it causes problems way down the road. Don't be doing that. But in Genesis chapter 25, we read that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. In other words, you know, hey, I was born first. I sold that. My birthright, everything I have is is yours now. And then Jacob stole Esau's blessings. The father, before he dies, gives a blessing to the firstborn. He, and And so he stole that. In a very sinister way, as you remember, you know, he put on some kind of a hairy garment on his arms and stuff. So when he went to his dying dad, his dad grabbed his arm and said, oh, yeah, it's Esau. Because Esau's hairy, you know, and Jacob wasn't. He stole it. He deceived. He stole it. That's Genesis chapter 27. So the true brothers actually uh, reconciled in uh, Genesis 32 and 33. But guess what? Their families never did. And their families were separate, and they were rivals, and they were, they struggled with one another the whole time throughout history. And, and even during the good times of Israel, and things were going bad, I mean, when things were going good, they were still struggling. When they were going bad, they were still struggling. Uh, Edom was the country that didn't want Moses and the exiles to come through on their way to the Promised Land. I mean, that's how long this rivalry has been going on. Edom was finally subjected by, by King David in Second Samuel chapter 8. And uh, during the reign of Jehoram, uh, Edom revolted, Second Kings chapter 8. So even though they were subjected at a time and some sort of probably not very good reconciliation had taken place, taken place Edom wound up revolting again. Now Edom, if you, I didn't put, bring you a map, but if you, you, you've seen a million maps of Israel. Edom's way down on the south. It's south of Judah. It's south of the Dead Sea. And it's a very, was a very, very large country. Uh, it was a craggy, rocky, hilly, uh, country. And, uh, the people of Edom liked that because they could live in the crags and the hills and the caves and things of that nature as a defense. Now, you think about it. As as a nation, what do we want to maintain ourselves as a civil and prosperous nation? Well, we have several things. We have laws that keep us together. We have a monetary system that keeps, hopefully keeps things flowing. We have a military that protects us from outside invasion. Well, Edomites weren't. Really, any different. They had their own little society. They had their own little struggles. And in that time, one of the best things you could do was either fight from a mountaintop or get in a really bad place where people couldn't get you. And in the crags of, of, of the areas around Petra, uh, some of you may remember the Indiana Jones, uh, movie, The Last Crusade, or The Last Crusader, Last Crusade, when they were looking for the the uh, Holy Grail, you remember that? And where were they in that process? Where did they finally find that old uh, knight and the Holy Grail and all that kind of stuff? Well, they found it in this craggy rock that somebody had carved a temple into. Remember that? And then when they ran away, they ran through all those rocks and got on the horses. Remember all that? That's Petra. That's Edom. So that movie was filmed in what was then Edom. Now, by the way, that temple wasn't created until about the year 200 A.D., but that's beside the point. That's still the area where it was. They did that because they didn't want big armies coming in. If armies came in, they had to march in, in file. They couldn't just rush because there was too many rocks and too many hills and too many crags and too many weird things there, so they were fairly protected. They had it made. They had a pretty good thing going for them. They thought, they thought this was the thing that they needed. And even after the prophecy of Obadiah, so, I mean, let's jump to the end of the story all of a sudden. The Edomites were overcome by the Nabataeans and forced to settle uh, in, in south of Judah in about uh, the 4th century uh, B.C., around uh, 100 B.C., maybe 100 to 150 or 60 years before the time of Christ, they were they were conquered by a fellow by the name of John Hyrcanus, uh, okay? And he was a, a Maccabean, which I don't have time to go into all that, but if you want to go some, into some interesting history right before the coming of Christ, go study the Maccabees and go study the ruling class of Israel before Jesus came and some of the struggles that happened uh, during that time. And so Judas Maccabeus slew 20,000 of the Edomites, killed them, uh, and the remainder were forced to be circumcised and to accept the law of Moses. You know that's not how the law of Moses was supposed to be accepted, uh, but uh, Israel was so corrupt itself by that time uh, that uh, that that was just what they did. So as such, the Edomites became very nominal Jews. They were. If, if you were to ask them if they were a Jew during this time and during the time of Christ, they would say, yes, I am. But they were extremely nominal Jews. One of the most prominent of those uh, Edomites uh, was Herod the Great. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. But he, he and other rulers in Israel during that time had made pacts with Rome... So that they could rule and they could sit on the seat or they could be called king of the Jews or they could be called governor or whatever. And it'd be OK because Rome blessed them and they had to just sort of try to appease the Jews and not really be part of. Them. Of course, Herod the Great also remember he rebuilt, you know, he he fixed up the temple. Remember that after it was destroyed? Uh, and so it was called Herod's Temple. And, uh, you know, he made it, tried to make it one of the grandest things in the world. So people would come from all around and other nations just to see this great temple. But the ambiance of the spiritual life was gone. It was all a facade by this time. Not all, there were people who loved God, but all of the religiosity of Israel by this time was gone. So there you go. That's who the Edomites really were. So what was the reason for Obadiah's prophecy? Against them, to tell them these things that God said. Well, the coming judgment on, on Edom. Coming judgment. Guess what? Judgment's coming. It's coming to everybody. It was coming to folks back then. It's coming to us today. Judgment is coming. One of the laws, one of the things that God set in place in in the world is judgment's coming. It's gonna come. You're gonna pay. You're gonna pay for your sins. You're gonna pay for your rebellion. So, so Obadiah's prophecy to them were the words of the Lord and the whole, whole process was, hey, judgment's coming to you. The reason for the judgment was the violence and the unbrotherly conduct of the Edomites toward the Israelites. Now, Jacob and Esau were long gone, but it was much tradition back then that the family stayed. You know, families don't stay together anymore. I mean, you know, how, many, how many of y'all, alls all y'all's families, all here in Wichita? No. Back then, families stayed together. They were military together. They were farming together. They were civilized together. They were everything together. And they stayed together. And, and, and the history went way back to how they started. And they started with Esau. And so they were loyal to Esau. And they were loyal to that whole rivalry against Esau and Jacob. That was where their loyalty was. So, literally, hundreds of years later, this rivalry is still going on. You talk about the Hatfields and McCoys. This thing is still going on. And they're still fighting. And they're still, they still hate each other. It's still going on. But Obadiah is not speaking to Israel in this, spe- or Judah. He's speaking to Esau. He's speaking to the Edomites in this particular situation. The house of Jacob, Israel, will consume the house of Esau. That's what's getting ready to happen. So Esau will be no more. Israel will possess the land of the Edomites and all the surrounding nations, and the ultimate rule will belong to the Lord. That's kind of a theme scripturally, isn't it? The ultimate rule belongs to God. It's all his. So notice what God says about the the Edomites. You might might glance at this if you wish, if you still have uh, Obadiah open. The source of the destruction is God, verses 2 through 4. God's going to do the destroying, okay? He's the one that's in command of this. There's always got to be somebody in charge, and the rest of us are not worthy at that level, so God's going to take care of that kind of judgment, all right? The thoroughness of the judgment is talked about in verses 5 and 6. I want to read that again, in case you missed it when we looked at it. If uh, If thieves came to you, if robbers at night, oh, what a disaster awaits you, would they not steal only as much as they want? In other words, if a thief comes and breaks into your house, he's going to take some, but, you know, most things are probably going to be okay. It's probably not going to burn the house down. It's probably not going to kill you, okay? If grape pickers came to your vineyard and took grapes, they're probably, not, they're probably going to leave some grapes. Something's going to be left. Verse 6, but how Esau will be ransacked his hidden treasures pillaged easy for you to say all your allies will force you to the border your friends will deceive you and overpower you those who eat bread with you uh, eat your bread will set a trap for you but you will not detect it this thing's going to happen and you don't even know it it's going to be an internal thing the folks you have made friends with, the folks you sit and eat with, the folks you do business with, are the ones that are going to take you down. They're going to destroy you. The means of the destruction is going to be, as I just mentioned, Edom's allies. This is going to be a coup. We've heard of coups where somebody on the inside, you remember, remember, those of you that are still alive, remember back in the 60s, the coup in Cuba, remember that? somebody, You know, Fidel Castro and them just wound up taking over, okay? That's a coup. The Nabataeans okay, were caravan drivers whom the Edomites trusted and traded with. They did business with them. They were business partners with them. You know, they lived kind of among them. They, they back and forth and all that. They were allowed into the cities. They were trusted people. They're the ones that turned on the Edomites and conquered them and literally ran them out of their country. What's the objects of destruction? Well, verses 8 and 9. God would destroy the wise men. And the mighty men of Edom, historically, when we go back into this time uh, and, and read about what happened to folks during this period of time, during a coup, usually the leaders were the ones that were killed first. And then eventually everybody else followed that. Instead of a kind of a normal war where we think about, you know, we're, we're beginning to pick off the army a little bit at a time, and the leaders way over there, and we finally get to them. No, that wasn't the way. That's not the way a coup works. The way a coup works is you grab the leader first, and then everybody else goes, gee, I don't know what we're going to do. We don't have any leaders. That's the way a coup works, and that's what was going to happen to them. Exactly. Well, what, you know, that's pretty cool history, and I love history. Uh, what's in it for us? What's in it for you and I today? Well, pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction. Almost a bit. How come they couldn't get along? Well, Edomites just could not. They could not stand hundreds of years later what Jacob did to Esau. They couldn't reconcile with that. Even though God reconciled it, he, he, he had it all figured out. They couldn't get it figured out. And they rivaled and rivaled to that day. Did you know there are still nations and peoples of nations that are still doing that today? That are still holding rivalries and grudges, and they still remember what happened thousands of years ago. It still happens today. Pride goes before destruction. Pride leads to vanity and a sense of independence from God. And so, in their in their in their uh, uh, sovereignty, and in their rebellion, and in their rivalry, they didn't worship God. And guess what? They're still they're these are children of Abraham. These are children of the father Abraham. They they are people of Abraham just like Jacob's people are people of Abraham. There's no difference. They couldn't worship God because they couldn't get over it. They couldn't stop the rivalry. They couldn't swallow their pride. They couldn't subject themselves to God. They just had to say, you know, hey, guys, we're going to fight this thing to the bitter end. God says, okay, you know, if that's the way you want it. He doesn't want it that way, but if that's the way you want it, God says we can take care of that. We can do that. What else does it teach us? Be careful how you treat your brothers. Well, that's a, we'd go into that for a long time, couldn't we? Be careful how you treat your brethren. Okay, this, this was Edom's major guilt. Verse 10, this was what God had against them is the way they treated their brothers. How we treat one another affects our relationship to the Lord. Do you ever think about that? <laughs> you, know, you, ever, you ever get this part about, you know, before you take communion, if your brother has ought against you, go, hmm. It means something. Our relationships with one another mean something. Why? Because we're children of God. Why did it mean something with the Edomites and the Israelites? Why did it mean something with it? Because they're, they're people of God. They're descendants of the great Prophet Abraham, their descendants of the man God chose, brought him out of Iraq and said, "Man, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, You're, and because of your nation, everybody in the world will be blessed because of you." Wow. But a faction of this family said, "Not us. We're not going along with that. What else? Don't rejoice when others fall. Don't rejoice when others fall. It's a pitiful thing. This is what Edom did when Judah had plundered. Verse 12 says, you laughed at your brothers. You were happy when they fell. You were happy when they had problems. Don't do that. What else did he say? God holds people and nations accountable for what they do. You and I personally, those of us as a congregation... As a people, he holds us accountable for that. Now, I realize in 21st century America, that's a nasty word, accountability. It's a nasty thing. We don't want to be held accountable. We want to be able to be our own boss. We want to be able to do our own thing. We want to be able to make our own decisions. And you can't say anything about it. We're, we're rapidly leaving God's plan of accountability with our fellow man. With our brothers, with the creation of God, that He fully intended to be godly and gracious and living in His house forever. What else? Sin follows a downward path. What happened to Edom? You know, you keep you keep going down that ladder, and pretty soon you're going to hit the bottom. You can't just keep going down. At some point you have to say, no, 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 we're not going to do this anymore. It's called repentance. <laughs> At some point we have to say, you know, I'm I'm not gonna do I don't I'm not gonna do this anymore. God, I've changed my mind, I've changed my heart, and I want to change my actions, I want to go the other direction. You can't just keep going down. What else did it does it tell us? God's gonna keep his word. He has always kept his word. He has always kept his word, and he's gonna keep his word. With us, he's going to keep his word with Edom. It's going to happen. And guess what? By the year 100 A.D., after all the New Testament books had been written, by about the year 100 A.D., the Edomite people were were no longer a part of the history of the world. Can't be found, don't know where they are, can't be reunited, can't be identified. They're gone. God kept his word. Kind of like the ten northern tribes. Remember that? We talked about that a lot of time. They went off into Assyrian captivity, never to be heard from again. It was only Judah and Benjamin that came back as a remnant. God keeps his word. It's serious. God keeps his word. What else? God will punish sin. Oh, God will forgive me. You know, I don't know how many times I have heard people say, oh, it's okay. God is a loving God. True. That doesn't mean you and I won't pay for our sins. Doesn't mean we won't be in trouble with God. Doesn't mean He won't be angry with us. God will punish sins. He punishes sin. He. The Scripture is 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 filled with just gobs and histories of God saying, I'm, I'm, "We're going to take care of this." You know, Adam and Eve. Didn't I tell you? You know, world. It got so corrupt. Hey. uh... See, there's no one. His wife. Come on, y'all get on the ark. We're taking care of this. I mean, time after time after time, we see that history. What else? God will protect His own. What's the one of the last things that Obadiah said to the Edomites? Well, let's just look at it. What's the what's the very end thing that he says? Uh, he said, this company of Israel exile, oh, delivers you up on Mount Zionai to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdoms will be the Lord's. God is going to lift Israel up and they're going to rule over everything that used to be Esau's. Jacob's family gets everything that was Esau's. They're going to be gone. God protects his people and maybe verse 15 is probably one of the coolest verses and you know you hear this a lot in scripture it says the day of the Lord is near for all nations as you have done it will be done to you your deeds will return upon your own head he's speaking to the Edomites what lesson is there for us today the day of the Lord is near yeah. You know, uh people have told me I'm the most one of the most patient people in the world. I don't know. I just somehow I learned to be patient. But you know what? In, in my kids can tell you, there comes a point <laughs> there comes a point when patience is over. <laughs> they don't like it when that. they didn't like it when that time came, you know. There's coming a time when God says, "You know, this is it." We've done everything we can do. The day of the Lord is coming. Now, that could be in an instant, or that could be the whole end of everything. It could be like in in Edom's situation, Esau's situation. It could be, hey, this is the end of you. I mean, this is the day of the Lord for Esau and the Edomites. There's also a day of the Lord when all things will come to accountability. But there is a day of the Lord. Things don't just go on like they always have. There is a time, there is a day of the Lord. It's all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. So if you think that a little guy like Obadiah didn't have much to teach us today, I think he's got a lot to teach us. I think Obadiah's a pretty cool guy. Uh, You know, he may be one of those guys we get to visit with once we cross into the pearly gates, you know. We may say, how hard was it, Obadiah, to pronounce this kind of judgment on this nation? He may say, man, that was really hard. How did you muster it up? How did you do that, Obadiah? Because it was God's will. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the example, Obadiah. That was God's will. How can I do that, Obadiah? Well, Mr. Banning, you do God's will. You do God's will in everything. In all things, you do God's will. Sure, you're going to slip up, but you always turn to God. You always keep your eyes on Jesus. You always move in the direction of the Lord. And his grace is waiting for you today and in eternity. Wow. In our own, you know, we can do this as a nation, we can do this as a, as a congregation, we can do this individually. We can rebel, we can be ugly, or we can follow God's will. And all we ask is that each of us, first of all, has to make up our minds that we're going to follow God. We're going to be on the side of Jacob. We're going to be on the side where God says, you're going to win. You're going to win in this situation because I can't stand sin and I can't stand this rebellion you're going to win. I always used to kind of, you know, uh, when, we were, when we were little kids, you know, we played Army, you know, and we played Cowboys and Indians and stuff like that. And, you know, you, were always, you, know, you always had to win, right? You had to you shoot the bad guy. Nobody wanted to wave the white flag. Did you ever notice that? We, I grew up in trailer parks. You know, we used to crawl under people's trailer houses, and we'd shoot each other, and make all kinds of racket and upset all the people that lived in the, in the trailer park. But nobody ever waved the white flag. As we become adults, we learn that waving the white flag is one of the best things we can do. It's time to give up and say, you know, all of my rebellion and all of my uh, uh, sarcasm, all of my ugliness, all of my sin, all of my rivalry, it's all gone, God. I just want to be on your side. If you want to be on God's side this evening, please come as we stand and sing.